0: Welcome everyone to the historical materialism podcast. My name is Lukas Slotos.
1: I am Ashok Kumar.
0: And this is a podcast where we basically do a deep dive into one particular article from the most recent issue of the historical materialism journal, um, in this case, 30.3.
1: Yeah, this is part of uh, historical materialism. Um, We're a journal um, and a book series. And we have a conference in London, but we also have conferences all over the world. Uh, And we sort of engage with uh, Marxism uh, critically, uh, but engaging in the Marxist tradition. And
0: today we are very excited to welcome um, a guest and the author of a brilliant paper in that issue of the journal, uh, Francesca TC Manning, or FTC Manning, uh, who's affiliated with the San Francisco Community Land Trust, amongst other places. Uh, who's written uh, a paper called A Defense of the Concept of the Landowning Class as the Third Class Towards a Logic of Landownership. So we'll have a discussion uh, on that. Francesca, if you want to get started with just explaining your overall argument, you argue that the landowning class is a third class. What do you mean by that?
2: I want to say that I, I came to this argument a little begrudgingly. Uh, because I needed a way to think logically and structurally about land in capitalism. I thought the ideas were already out there, and I just needed to find them. So I was researching on my own, like gentrification, racialization of urban land dispossession, these types of themes. Of course, I went to David Harvey. I went to Neil Smith and the Rank Gap, and I ascended the chain of abstractions of land and capitalism and I reached ground rent theory. And then I read a lot of the modern classics there. And there was still something logically missing for me in that work. I was simultaneously reading more sort of value form theory, not to mention a little bit of psychoanalysis. And I felt that the Marxist analysis of land questions was still lacking an internal coherence on the one hand and also a connection to the larger totality of capitalist social relations. So this intervention for me is about trying to make that theory more coherent. And the way that I think it does that, well, I went, so I went back to Marx, you know, as we do, and I noticed in his work that the landowning class as the third class, alongside capitalists and workers, was absolutely essential to the idea of ground rent. As I talk about in the paper, Marx does use the term class to talk about a lot of different things sort of casually, like the intelligentsia or merchant capital. But he also does make sure to use the term class in a very specific structural way when he talks about the capitalist and the working class and the landowning class. And he's very clear and explicit that for him, there are three classes that constitute what he calls the framework of modern society, the proletariat, the capitalists, and the landowners. We know the capitalists own the means of production. We know the proletariat as those who own not but their own labor power. Landowners to complete the triad own land, of course. And that is completely unlike the ownership of labor power or of means of production so in a very simple terms the land owning class as the third class is are the landowners they own the land in the capitalist mode of production and it's as simple as that and as complicated as that what is ownership of land what is land etc but it is absolutely essential and necessary for the functioning and the continued reproduction of both of the other two classes that there is a class of people charged with ownership of the land.
1: Yes, you've laid out why uh, Marx sort of sees land ownership as one of the three kind of linchpins that hold capitalism together in some ways. In the piece, you're primarily debating uh, Marxist geographers, namely people like Massey and Harvey and others, and specifically uh, their dismissal of Marx's position on the centrality of the landowning class. Uh, could you lay out some of the arguments of why they sideline the central role that Marx places landowners within?
2: Yeah, it's funny because when I have described this project I've been working on to people who are like Marx friendly, but not deep Marxologists, they'll be like, oh yeah, that makes sense, of course, a landowning class. But if I talk about it to Marxists, and I've emailed like a lot of people, like people who write books being like, what do you think of this? And they'll be like, no, the landowners are not a class. They're just not. Like, what are you talking about? Like, don't bother me. And uh, so why why do they think the landowners are not a class? I mean, that's there's two ways to answer the question. One is like, what are their given reasons that they state it? And then why do I suspect that they partake in this, in my opinion, relatively weak dismissal? For my intellectual curiosity, the biggest discovery I made when I was trying to understand why people do it is that they don't make an argument for why, make a very clear argument for why. Most people don't. So Massey and Catalano do not really make any kind of clear argument for why landowners are not a class. They just say, obviously, they're not. And that is very common. And I just I emphasize that because I think it's it's important. When we notice something that becomes just like an assumed truism that like people don't even think they have to explain like people will say like look around do you see a landed aristocracy people say that to me a lot and i was like well i don't know maybe, maybe i do like I, if you mean like you know like fancy aristocrats like with huge villas like i understand those people don't exist anymore in the way they used to but yeah so So I was really fascinated by how little people felt the need to explain their dismissal. There's a couple of people who are a little more explicit. I would say I think Pulanzas is one of the most laudable in this respect because he really says, I am taking a completely different stance than Marx did. So he acknowledges that Marx thought the landowners were a class. And he says, I do not think that they are a class. I think that they are a class fraction, which is something that got pretty popular mid, mid 20th century, this idea of class fractions. Um, and he's, he sees himself as following Lenin in that. And they both are sort of suggesting that landowners exist in a way, but they, are not, they do not belong to the quote unquote pure social relations of the capitalist mode of production, which I like because that's what I'm concerned with. What are those pure social relations? And I do think that landowners are there Kulanzas also argues explicitly that he thinks the reason Marx was wrong about this is because during Marx's time, landowners had a sort of outsized role in the economy because they were so important for feudalism and so important for the transition in terms of enclosures and all this. So they were just very powerful and very noticeable. And so he thinks that Marx was like a little bit mystified by their relative power at the time. So I'm like, okay, that's a real argument and I can, I can do something with that. So I appreciate Poulantzas for being really explicit about that. Um, so then you have to look and say, okay, is there really a decline in a sort of both autonomous power of a landowning class for itself, so to speak? Does that still exist? And then you also have to think about, even if the landowning class for itself doesn't exist. Is there a land-owning class in itself? Like, is there still like a logical function of land ownership that constitutes an even disempowered land-owning class? And I think the answer to both those questions, I find eventually, is, seems to be provisionally that it exists in both respects.
0: You already touched on what Marx actually says about this, but could you just tell the listeners a bit more about what's the kind of textual evidence for Marx's own position on this? Because in a way you're saying this is the correct or the right Marxist position, but you're also saying that it is Marx's own position.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we're mainly looking at Capital Volume 3 and Theories of Surplus Value Volume 2. But uh, I would say that his argument is more logical and abstract than it is um, evidence-based. Like He goes and he looks at a lot of specific dynamics that occur around, for example, the interactions between the landowning class and the capitalist class, like as the corn laws being a very famous example. But I think ultimately his belief in the importance of the landowning class is a much more theoretical one because he sees the absolute necessity of keeping land from people in order to both initiate capitalist production and to reproduce it moving forward, to reproduce the doubly free labor. There's no way to do that without some group of people taking care of private land ownership. And I think it's in that, that he really bases his
1: theory. Um, I kind of wanted to go a little bit to the first answer uh, because you didn't sort of touch on this in the, in the paper, or maybe I missed it. He said there's two reasons why Marxists are dismissive or antagonistic towards the idea of, of a landowning class being a third class. And the first reason seems to be that you sort of point out, but I'm wondering what the second unspoken reason might yeah, be. Yeah.
2: That's the fun one. So I touch I I point to it a little bit in the paper. Um, but I, I think that there's an unsettling for many Marxists communist socialists, there's an unsettling feeling when you have a third class, because there's this sureness when you have the two classes that the very most important ground zero zone of relevant activity occurs in the conflict between capitalists and workers, which occurs in the workplace. And once you have this idea that there's a third class, there's a necessary conclusion that there's also these other places that might constitute essential spaces and times of whether you want to say class struggle of activity which determines defines and transforms capitalism and could determine transform and define what comes next and i think that that's very difficult for people who have oriented themselves around that the two-class idea and the importance of that conflict. And so I'm very interested in what where we go if we if we open up that space.:
1: There aren't many instances, you know outside of feudal or semi-feudal modes of production, and there are tenant social relations, where mass action by tenants, against landlords have resulted in the sort of appending of the existing social order. And I'm thinking even more recently, like, You know, the general strikes in Tunisia and Egypt and day 16 and day 18 that were kind of the decisive blow, unlike other popular struggles that didn't have that kind of built up um, kind of working class organization to do that. And so they they weren't as successful, you could say. So you state that the, quote, theory of evolution treats struggles outside the point of production as having less historical and strategic significance. Uh, that's the end of that quote. But uh, I'd ask, is this borne out in the evidence? You know, is, is the prioritizing of wage-labor relations as the ground zero of class struggle, rather than targeting the landowning class, as you say, more to do with the social power of workers to kind of grind society to, the ha- to a halt under capitalism, rather than disregarding the central role of landowners in the sort of ongoing stability of capitalism as a system? So
2: let's talk about this evidence. Uh, One thing very important, I think, to the theory, is that the place where proletarians and landowners come into conflict is not as landlords and tenants. That is not the primary relation that like proletarians or like the poor or like the outsiders of the world interface with landowners. In terms of strict ground rent theory, landlords and tenants are landlords and capitalist tenants capitalist tenants who pay ground rent out of their cash receipts i've written a paper where i like try to go deep into that i can link it in show notes if that's helpful but the struggle between landlords and proletarians or if you don't want to confine it to the term proletarian you know the global non-capitalist non-landowner people is one of direct struggle over territory over space, over land, et cetera. So I think, you know, the Zapatistas and the Naxalites would be two very well known examples of organized, extremely effective, extremely long lasting mass actions which take over territory, bar it from privatization within capitalism through private land ownership. I mean, they bar private land ownership. So I would actually argue that immediate struggles over land and territory have resulted in more vast instantiations of social power materially challenging the capitalist mode of production and actually lasting for protracted amounts of time before being reabsorbed. And of course, worker struggles are just, you know, renowned and defined by their inevitable reabsorption until until the time when they are not reabsorbed, of course, until the the real one, but also even worker struggles that have some of them that have been the most challenging that we cite a lot uh, have been connected to some kind of a land takeover or autonomous use and defense space, for example, Argentina, you know. Uh, and so this, I think, brings us to the question, not just of bringing capital's production to a grinding halt, which I'm all for obviously, but in like a two core refusal of all of the fundamental relations of capitalist society. And like, as Marx said, an abolition of the of the current state of things. And I think this abolition and refusal is what's at stake in a lot of, of course, abolitionist literature. That's, I think, a growing thread. Um, a growing body of work now, as well as work in the black radical tradition, as well as work in the Afro-pessimist thread tradition. And of course, these all emerge from varying degrees from black thought. And I don't think it's surprising that within such threads we find perhaps like a deeper and more cutting critique of capitalism than what you might call the workers critique And I really do think that the theory of the landowning class can, not necessarily, but can push the Marxist mind to brush against its edges. And, you know, the conflict between landowners and those who would abolish all forms of capital and liberal land ownership and land use, that conflict demands a consideration of forms of life far beyond like a socialist redistributive state which I think absor- like partakes in a lot of the same social forms as capitalism. It goes beyond like worker control over production, which still takes as for granted the concept of production and the idea of productive activity and so on. So I, I do wonder if this is why also contributes to why many Marxists avoid the theory of the landowning class.
0: Okay, well, now might be a good time then. If you could talk us through what are the reasons why other Marxists dismiss this idea that landowners are a separate class. You say specifically in the paper that there are four kind of main reasons why they would do this. The first one being that they are feudal residuals. Second one, that they are simply a subset of capitalists. The third one, that landowners are around but they will eventually wither away. Or fourthly, that landowners are better conceived as rentiers. Could you talk us through these four?
2: So the feudal residuals, we've sort of touched on it a little bit. It's very common, as I said, as a sort of dismissive gesture to be like, oh well, you know. They're just a holdover from feudal times. We know what feudalism was supposed to look like in this ideal foil that it plays for us to capital society where the landowners are like the powerful guys. So there's just this residual like existence of the landowners. Eventually they'll just they'll just work themselves out and they'll, and they'll be gone. So a lot, a lot of people really do partake in this feudal residuals argument. And, um, but I'm going to go to, from the feudal residuals to the withering away, right? So I was very, uh, taken with how similar the withering, the people treated the concept of the landowning class to the, the idea of the withering away of the state in some threads of Marxism, because it really, it was very, it's very similar in the sense of like, it's different from just feudal residuals because this position, the withering away of the land owning class, it says that landowners are not just residuals. They were absolutely essential for the transition. So in order to get from feudalism to capitalism, we needed the land owning class. They were, they were really, really, really important. But once the transition has been effected they are no longer essential. They are no longer part of the pure core logical function of capitalism. So they wither away, essentially. So it's similar to feudal residuals, but with a slightly different abstract understanding of the role of the land class. Then we have a very basic idea that landowners are just a subset of the capitalist class. And that usually people usually, as I mentioned before, describe it in terms of being a class fraction, similar to merchant capital, or something like that. And I will say to just directly to this, that that is outrageous to me because the material basis for let for landowners is so different than for capitalists. It is the ownership of land and owning land is not owning capital or the means of production. It's not the same. And so, and, I'll, and I can go into that a little bit more about what is different about land, but I'll leave it there for the moment and just talk about what's probably the most prevalent other than just dismissing it as a feudal residual, especially in the field of geography, my field, uh, landowners are are broadly understood as like a type of a rentier class um, or a financial. And this comes a lot from Harvey's work and Harvey's understanding of financialized land ownership being the the type of land ownership that that happens in capitalism. And to this point... I'm often dismayed by how ground rent is conflated with interest. So in order to hold this position that um, landowners are both a subset of the capitalist class and particularly this thing called a rentier, uh, it always involves conflating land ownership with the ownership of other kinds of monopolizable assets, such as intellectual property rights is one of the most commonly pointed to other monopolizable asset and so the idea that say that owning land is the same as owning the rights to the calvin klein logo or a selena gomez song is outrageous because think about the material basis of those different things it is wildly different to own and and monopolize a section of the globe than it is to own like an infinitely repeatable but like trademarked song or picture or something like that. And I and I feel like theories which which go in that direction are just like becoming very disconnected from the quote unquote material basis of these of these social relations.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of I I've seen that increasingly on um, more even radical but also just critical geography scholarship. Uh, that sort of Rontier analysis, which I think in, in lots of ways is helpful, um, is kind of just being generalized to see the entire kind of landowning classes falling within it, but also that it's, like you said, comparing it to these intangible things. I mean, you touch on this a bit, but and you touch on it a bit even now, but if you look at kind of the advanced capitalist world, you know, there's not really the same kind of distinct landowners as you saw sort of when Marx was writing but not now sort of capitalists and financiers in the form of private equity, that has sort of gobbled up the lion's share of new housing for the purposes of rent extraction and speculation. So why is, as Harvey states, is financialized land ownership the properly capitalist form of land ownership?
2: Like, I feel like you touch on two different things. There's why is financialized ownership, the owner, land ownership the properly capitalist form? But then there's this question of like, what does it mean when you have private equity gobbling up real estate and so like i think i'm really here to say like if you have a private equity company that primarily gobbles up real estate that is a landowner that is a land-owning company not a capitalist company and in terms of financialized land ownership being the capitalist form of land ownership i find the term financialization at this point in my life to be more obfuscating than elucidating but insofar as it means that you are prioritizing the returns on your land by all means necessary and leveraging wealth one has to accumulate more land and Probably more than anything else, the concept of financialized land ownership means for people having a completely disconnected relationship to the land you own. So you own a plot of land, maybe you've never been there. Maybe you've never seen it. Maybe you don't know what the farmers grow on it. Maybe you don't know what the people in the build in the skyscraper do. Maybe you don't even know where the skyscraper is. So. I think financialized land ownership speaks to like an extreme disconnection between the landowner and the land. And I think that that is, is just what's been the case for a very long time. Um, for as long as capitalism has existed, absentee landowners in like early America in in the slaveholding South, for example, were very common, um, because it's possible. It's possible to, to own land through the, uh, facilitation of the general equivalent of abstract exchange value to own the land and to never go there. And and once it's possible, people will do it.
0: Could you just explain in very basic terms what it is that's different about land? Because it seems like a lot of your argument rests on a claim that other Marxists or more generally the scholarship doesn't fully acknowledge the peculiarity of land. So how is land different from other, the other forces of production in capitalism? What's the difference between land and labor, etc.? What is it that gives land some special quality that means that we need this third, the understanding of it as a third class, those who own it?
2: I love this question. I think my answer might seem a little strange, but maybe it'll seem obvious. I think that land is the one and only non-produced, monopolizable factor of production. So okay, it's non-produced, as in, we cannot make more of it. And importantly here, water counts as land. Land is more like space, space in which production can happen, surface of the globe. And then two, it is monopolizable insofar as it can be enclosed. Its exclusive use can be defended, militarily or otherwise. Some things are non-produced, but non-monopolizable. Sunlight, for example. Or following Marx, certain chemical truths, like the fact that when hydrocarbon combusts, it creates heat carbon dioxide, and water. This is like a fact. It's not produced. We didn't make it so that happened, but you can't monopolize a chemical process. You can't make it so other people can't use it. Um, And then some things are monopolizable, but they are produced, which are, of course, commodities. So land is monopolizable and not produced. And it's the only thing, really, that's like that. And that's what makes it so special.
1: Uh, Can you explain how, if at all, the landowning class impedes labor-saving technological advances?
2: So the standard line is that if you are a farmer renting your land and you invest, say, 20% of your yearly costs of production, like an additional 20%, in buying new machinery... That will reduce your cost of production the following year. And the h- vents raise your profit rate. Once that profit rate goes up, the land- your landowner will raise your rents to capture that excess profit so that your profit rate will come back down, say, to 11%. Which I was looking up what's the common profit rate in Midwestern agriculture. So you made 11%. Profit rate before you invest in that technology, then you invested in it, and then you're make, and then once the rent goes up, you're just making eleven percent again. So that's kind of the standard argument that implies there would be a barrier to technological development in agriculture. Does that really play out that way? I'm not sure. Um, I don't actually think it's essential for Marxist theory of ground rent as it has come to seem in the secondary literature. I think it can happen that way. Um, I also don't think that these these dynamics are exclusive to agriculture. I think that they can play out in any sector in which there is a proportionally large amount of outlay costs from the capitalist goes to paying rent. Uh, so yeah. So then, so once you have a kind of understanding of what how it could play a barrier, then you have to say, is that really how it plays out in practice? Because, I mean, capitalists will take that one year of more profits, usually, if they can, right?
0: What, if anything at all, does land reclamation projects do to your argument? Because you're saying that it's kind of space, not really land in itself. So, you know, the ocean or water surfaces could also count, but part of it seems to be that it's not just the ability to monopolize it and that it's not produced, but also that it's in certain important ways finite or that, you know, there's not really a kind of a reserve army of land, even though it is possible for a landowner to, as you explain in the paper, keep the land empty, you know, wait for rent to go up and in the meantime, basically leave the land unused. But does land reclamation play a role in this at all? I mean, we can think of so many land reclamation projects in the past 100 years that seem to have, in some ways, maybe challenged, but in other ways, probably also reinforced or accelerated this kind of process of of the ownership of land as being very central to capitalist development. I mean, so these projects have obviously been primarily at the forefront of places that have adopted certain kinds of hyper-capitalist forms. We can think of Singapore, we can think of Monaco, we can think of in the Gulf states, classic cases of land reclamation. Does that play any kind of role in this argument at all? Okay,
2: so I live in San Francisco, which happens to have done a lot of land reclamation, maybe some of the earliest capitalist land reclamation of sand dunes, marshes, and the bay. Lots of landfill, lots of extending the coastline, various places around here, very long time ago. And I guess the first thing I think of is like what is really the difference between land reclamation from water which is usually how we talk about it and um improving land that is of extremely difficult terrain like that is very difficult to use like sand dunes so a lot of San Francisco is built on sand dunes and is slowly sinking and sand dunes we think of as already land and water is like not yet land but like where really it comes into a conflictual situation is who owns the water and so I think that this really goes into the juridical question of like the land-owning class in addition to kind of taking us through the inquiry into the land-owning class into a sort of question of refusal of abolition I also think it takes us into some interesting questions about the state about the juridical because of the intimate relationship between landowners and the state because so yeah so like when you're talking about land reclamation from water that there's all these different kinds of international laws around who owns water how much water off the coast is owned by who and if you own this island like do you own this much of the water etc owning meaning states you know states owning the land so i like where that question goes in terms of making us consider an avenue towards also theorizing the state in these very sort of rigorous necessary to the internal logic of capital form and I do think that land can take us there because in order to defend land private property and land you need a state like some you need law you need law and I'm thinking a lot of like Femi Taiwo like the the philosopher one like not the elite capture one both amazing but uh the, who, who writes very interesting work on um, how we have to be anti-jurisprudence altogether as communists. We have to completely let go of any conception of revolutionary law or Marxist law at all because we need to, because the whole concept of law is inherent to capitalism and produced by it. And you know, it's something we need to overcome.
1: So I want to kind of go back to some of, the arguments of, uh, some of the arguments in the paper and you sort of go through in the last bits of it about agriculture in great detail, agriculture, commercial, housing sectors and rent in the U.S. And I kind of was hoping that you can draw out the distinctions and sort of summarize some of your arguments with what keeps them apart, where are the similarities and what do they tell us?
2: Um, sorry, keeping what apart? So
1: you, ta- you draw out sort of agriculture, commercial and housing sectors in the U.S. in the paper. Oh yes, yeah. and I kind of was hoping that you can you know tell us how they're just different. What's your sort of basic argument around?
2: Yeah, that? I was. I've always been very confused about how there's so little crossover between studies around urban land and studies around rural land. And I do think that the theory of ground rent and of the landowning class enables us to analyze the way capital is moving through land across all of these distinctions. So. There are going to be certain logics at play, as you mentioned earlier, Lucas, the, the sort of the tendency of the landowning class to hold land until they can get the rent that they want. Their refusal to rent at very, very low prices or for nothing. As Mark said, they're not philanthropists. They're never going to just let people use their land for free. So this And so we see that, you know, in the hottest housing markets, there are like highest rates of vacancy we see in, in farmland, global land rushes to like places where all of, all of a sudden all of these, these private equity firms, et cetera, want to purchase land like in Ethiopia or something like that. Huge amounts of the land in Myanmar, huge amounts of the land are unused, just untouched for years and years and years after this like rush to invest. So you have these specific dynamics that you can see at play across. And of course, commercial property is like wild. In San Francisco, you know, there's so much empty commercial property. It's, it blows your mind at, at the, alongside like desperate small businesses who like have to just shut their doors because they can't afford the high rents. So I do feel that these theories really bring us to a place where we can compare and analyze these different spaces with each other, which have been so siloed, urban studies and rural studies, for so long. I think there's some really interesting work now trying to fight against that. But I also just remembered, like earlier when you asked about private equity, I had wanted to mention, I once went to this mainstream conference, economics conference, and I went to all of the real estate panels. to see what people are saying. They're mostly completely bonkers. Don't make people just saying things that make no... No sense. But this one guy was very, this old guy was very interesting. He said some interesting stuff. And I went up to talk to him afterwards. He was a retired CEO of a real estate company, private real estate company based in Nevada. And he told me there is no reason for private real estate companies to let anybody know what they're doing, how much land they own, how much money they make on that land. There's no incentive for them to share that information with researchers, with journalists, with anybody. And private land-owning companies are like extremely closed and private, and we will never know their scope and really like how many and how much. And so I feel that is an important consideration when we think about does the land-owning class exist today? When I talk to people who are kind of adjacent or in that world, they're like, oh, yeah, they do, but we're never going to, you're never going to find anything out about them, you know, and I, I think that that seems accurate.
0: Could you explain to the listeners who might not have read the paper just yet, you have this quite substantial section, a brilliant section where you talk the reader through the agricultural sector in the US and plot different commodities produced on land and how variation in the need for particular types of land for particular kinds of agricultural commodities and so on. Could you just explain or summarize the findings or what that means for bolstering your account or your theory here? Because it seems quite central to it that you can show that it's kind of actually borne out in the evidence. Well,
2: yeah, I was pretty surprised to find when I when I looked at you know the major grain cash crops in the U.S. I, I was trying to figure out which ones have the highest rents. Which ones, like, can I, can I compare the organic composition in these sectors to their rents? And of course, that was the question earlier, one of you asked about, is there a barrier to technological development in agriculture, as is argued within Marxian ground rent theory? And so when we look at rice, cotton, wheat, soybeans, corn, these major grain cash crops in the US, the idea that like low organic composition correlates with high rents, and that would be the ground rent argument. You know, you have low organic composition creating potentially more profits, but those receipts, those that that revenue is does not go to the capitalist farmer, but is collected in rent, which prevents it, importantly, from being equalized across the economy. So you have these the, the surplus value is not equalized as it is with in general. Supposedly with other sectors. And what I found that was very interesting is that the one cash crop that followed this formula was rice and rice has a very low organic composition and is extremely pricey to rent. Rice land, and the the thing that's distinguishable about rice from all the other cash crops is that it it requires extremely specific types of land to grow it. Supposedly, let's say that you need this very specific type of land for the production of rice. Whereas with other with other forms, you know, of agriculture, with other cash crops, you it's very easy to open up new land to farm it. And for example, um, in my discipline, Clyde Woods, amazing uh, geographer author of Development Arrested talks about how cotton as as a as a type of cash crop was targeted by the US government for the Green Revolution in order to open up how many places were able to grow cotton and how effectively and how high the yield was. So whereas previously it might have been, I would have guessed and I would like to look at these statistics, it was higher rents, more difficult to grow cotton before the Green Revolution afterwards you can grow grow cotton much more easily you can get high yields much more easily so cotton is no longer a crop in which you see really low composition and high rents you in fact have relatively low rents alongside relatively low organic composition rice on the other hand no one's figured out how to make it really easy to grow everywhere so this goes back to the argument about in order for there to be great ground rents extracted in order to have land ownership be a powerful force in terms of getting a larger portion of the revenue you need to have monopolizable land monopolizable non-produced resource and so rice land is more monopolizable than corn land or cotton land because it is more difficult Is there's less of it it is more difficult to create and produce
1: yeah i mean that's a similar situation obviously that you find in In industrial production, I I thought that was really interesting. I mean, um, in the sense of like, you know, the ones that are the most valorizable and the most monopolizable are the ones that are not as easily accessible.
2: Can you say more, a little bit more about that? How it's similar to industrial production?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, if I heard your argument correctly, if you look at the garment sector, obviously it's a low organic composition of capital and that organic composition has resulted in like, basically... It's because of the structure of the, of the of the production process and you sort of have these like three-part structure and obviously it's very like many sellers few buyers so they haven't been able to exit like sort of you know exit the orbit of low-cost production they haven't been able to invest in labor saving technology but the parts of the sector in which you're able to see a, a little bit of it getting a little bit valorizable are the ones that have a little bit more intensity so, so for example denim has a little bit more intensity then that therefore can be more standardized. Therefore, you can, can actually have investment in R&D and have, it can, you can have that kind of market edging out process, similar to like men's undergarments, men's undergarments, which are like commodity producers. So they're produced quite literally in a cotton field and they don't need that kind of that process. So if, if you, you're a producer who produces near the cotton field, it's standardized. It's not like bogged down by like seasonality or ephemeral fashion trends, et cetera. Those factors mean that it allows for certain firms to be able to find ways to valorize it to like find ways to technologically advance in the way that like other parts of the sector that are just far more accessible um so like women's blouses for example you it's it's, it's because it's not standardized because it's tied to like fashion trends that are ephemeral it's tied, it's tied to seasonality what's in now is in, in tomorrow just i mean i'm just using that as a as an example of this but i don't know if that's exactly what you're saying because. I mean, I was trying to understand what you're saying insofar so far as like because rice isn't accessible to everyone. That's what allows it to become more monopolizable.
2: The yeah, the land for the rice, and you're kind of talking about and, and in in this situation, you were saying
1: that the women's shirts are are less monopol are more monopol are less monopol. less monopolizable because they're more accessible because. I, you know, literally, it, you can't standardize it. Because you can't standardize it because of all the dynamics involved, it means that everyone can access it. And the minute that things can slightly be standardized, that firm that has slightly more capital is, can then try and find some way to edge out other firms, which make it more expensive to start a firm, which increases the barriers to entry, which is obviously the step before monopolization.
2: I feel you, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I would wonder like what the rent is like for these different kinds of, of production. Because I think that there's a weird it's weird that we only talk about agriculture when we talk about ground rent because theoretically it should function the exact same way in any in any sector if it's like harder to find the space to ha- to do the thing. Then, and you're not necessarily necessarily saying it's harder to find the space, but it could be harder. It could be harder to like get a new factory that can like be as flexible as to make all these different kinds of shirts.
1: How do you exactly define ground rent, and like how would you distinguish it from, say, interest? And you adjust this a little bit, but
2: I would I would stay I can stay very simple on that. Ground rent is the revenue that landowners collect on the basis that they own land so they it is the money that they can charge for the use of their land period now i actually think that the more confusing concept for people is interests and like people think that it, and you know mark says interest is this seductive category it's just like money makes money magically and once that happens this magic phenomena like bleeds on to like everything else. And it seems like everything can magically make money. So like your labor, your wages are just interest on your labor. You know what I mean? And I think that there is an unfortunate like partaking in that of some scholarship that would like to be more critical. So interest is technically you lend money and you get the money back plus an extra payment for your lending. For Marx, interest and profits, profits being The revenue you collect after you, a capitalist company produces a good and sells it, and then you get your initial outlay back plus extra profits. Profits and interest are just two sides of the same coin of what capitalists get. So capitalists can be money lending capitalists; they can be productive capitalists. They're all capitalists in a sense. You can think of. I always think kind of like capital is a means of production. So you own the means of production, like a factory, or you own capital, and you put it into motion, you get either interest back or you get profits back. Uh, profits of enterprises, mark sometimes says. Those material bases for the collection of interest or collection of profits have absolutely nothing to do with the material basis of ground rent extraction, which is the ownership of land and the allowing people to use it in exchange for a fee.
0: One quite important part of the argument seems to also be that you clarify how it's also possible for someone to both be a capitalist and a landowner, and that sometimes these coincide in the same way that it's also possible to, in some instances, both be a worker and a capitalist. If you're like the CEO of a big company, you are in a way doing wage labor, but you might also have massive asset holdings or whatever that you're exploiting others through. Could you explain this in a little bit more detail and also maybe say something about the tendency of the trajectory of this? So is there a tendency for consolidation of these two classes or a kind of divergence of them or a change in their kind of relative power
2: so um you you laid it out very well for me thank you uh you know this these two things that happen where like you have a capitalist say that owns a company and is also the ceo and gets a wage or also has some other title and gets a wage so they're a capitalist and a worker theoretically and there's many different versions of that This never seems to imply to anybody that class status of capitalists or the class status of workers is called into question. But for some reason, the fact that a person or a company could both be a capitalist and be a landowner makes people think like, oh, landowners don't exist anymore. So that, that like double standard to me, I'm like, I was like, what is going on here? Like, why, how can you use this as evidence to dismiss landowners as a class where you happily accept it in the case of proletarians and capitalists? And that's again, where I go back to like, what, what is the sort of subconscious desires at play in this dismissal of the landowners? Anyway, but you're asking me, do I think that there's like historical tendencies in a certain direction? The pro- one of the projects that I'm trying to finish up right now is, is to look at what people refer to as financialization as potentially being more about the growth of a landowning interest, the channeling of wealth into land ownership and ground rent in- extraction. Because, for example, in the U.S., if you look at what's called the fire sector, finance, insurance, real estate People analyze the fire sector and a lot of people who have made the argument that financialization is on the increase over the last X amount of decades point to the increase in the fire sector over that time. However, if you disaggregate real estate from finance and insurance, it's actually real estate that embodies the greatest growth that contributes to this apparent ascent of finance. So I think that as... With alongside like falling rates of profit in productive industry, we associate that with a movement into lending, into finance. And I also think it correlates with a growth in ground rent extraction and a, and a growth in the power and wealth of the landowning class, because you have this like liquidity that sloshes around the world, Where is it going to go, it goes into land goes into accelerating the methods of ground rent extraction. I think that actually what I see anecdotally is that capitalists would love to be landlords, is that capitalist firms, if they can move into land ownership, do. And if they can make most of their money off of ground rent extraction, do. I don't often see it going the other way in what I've just sort of provisionally looked at. And I think that that conceptually makes sense in terms of how quote-unquote passive land-owning income is and how it is not as volatile. You're not at risk of losing as much in land ownership as you are in capitalist production.
0: How does that square with the point that you also make in the paper, though, that lots of capitalist firms, very large ones, rent their office space, for example? Why wouldn't they, even if they had the capital to buy it why do they still in a way decide to be dependent on this other class wouldn't there be incentives for them to just squeeze out the uh, landowning class
2: oh i think they can't afford it i think if you have capitalist companies renting like 25 floors out of a skyscraper in like manhattan it's because they can't they can't own their own like, if they could own it themselves, they wouldn't be doing whatever they're doing in those offices. They would just be owning a skyscraper. So I do think there's a scale question. Like, I think not just that. There's also, like, a collaboration between capitalists and landowners. Capitalists are, are making their profits the way they're doing it, and they don't want to, like, hunker down a bunch of money somewhere. They just want to rent. You know, that, that can be a factor, too. It's just, like, a difference in, in strategy
0: okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. A kind of related question is whether landowners are are a necessary class for capitalism. And so whether it would be, even if you say that in practice this isn't actually what's happening, you know that they're withering away. You're saying they don't seem to be withering away. If anything, they need they seem to be ascending in their power. Would it be possible in theory for that to happen? Or let's say that there could be some kind of rupture or tipping point at which, after which this would be different so that actually landowners could, could they in theory or in principle be subsumed by capitalists? Or is that just kind of a logical uh, impossibility for you?
2: It's interesting that you said, can they be subsumed by capitalists rather than can they be eradicated? Can they be subsumed by capitalists in the sense that land ownership comes under the auspices of companies whose revenues are primarily in capitalist production or or money lending? Sure, I think that would happen in a situation where ground rents were very low. So it was not particularly lucrative to own land and rent it which is hard for us to imagine, but there's been moments in time. In that sense, they could be subsumed in so far as like a landowning class interest would still exist, but the majority of land ownership was being done by firms whose primary interest was not in that land ownership or ground rent extraction. And I think you can see some of this example, some some of this happening in the mid-century US housing market. Do I think that the landowning class can be eradicated actually so that there is no there are no people there are there is no entities entity or entities responsible for the private ownership of land no that is not possible I mean the what Marx says is that capitalists would love for that to be the case so they didn't have to pay any rent they would especially love if the state would just own all the land so that they could just let them use it whenever they wanted to and like stop using it whenever they wanted to. But that would still be a form of land ownership. It would just be state-based land ownership. So you still, that that absolutely necessary function of private land ownership is still required, private or, or public, I guess, in that, in that case.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, people like Keynes uh, argued for euthanizing the landlords. I mean, it was... It was obviously about stabilizing profits. Um, I think, you know, I, I mean, this might be a bit of a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyways, is, you know, you reference Ullman's text on class, where he says these, these classes are actually in conflict. And to this end, you know, Marx and Engels and the conditions of, of working class in England describe the kind of antagonism between the interest of the landowning class and the capitalist class in the sort of emergence of industrial capitalism when they're talking about the corn laws. So these are like steep tariffs, obviously imports on rye, malt, wheat, this is in Britain. And they were to the benefit of the landowning class. And these high ta- tariffs also increased the cost of capitalists in terms of actually ensuring, or ensuring um, uh, subsistence for, for workers. So you know, they lobby the state, they get rid of these tariffs. And uh, it, you know, the ultimate effect of that is that basically that it takes less for workers to subsist, which means which means capitalists need to pay w- workers... Less and you, know, you make this argument earlier about how I don't think you use this word, but, you know, labor struggles are often recu- recuperated by capitalism. And I, I, you know, obviously, Marx also makes this argument in, in, in chapter 10, volume one, fight for the working day, where, you know, the, the, the victory of the working day is then recuperated in the form of relative surplus value. But if you look at like fights over rent controls, you know, the beneficiary of that could, of course, be the tenant, but it could also be the capitalists. Because it requires less wages once those controls on the sort of basic essential of life is controlled. So do these struggles and any gains or slash concessions they're able to make actually result in a kind of retrenchment of capital?
2: Absolutely. Uh, I think that this is an extremely relevant point. In San Francisco right now, we have significant wage gains, okay? Like we have really high wages here. Um, there's a bifurcation of wages, of course, where like poor people are not having the wage gains, but even the minimum wage is is quite high. But really, landowners have ri- raised their rents so much that they are capturing most of those rising wages. And capitalists are, are pissed about it. Like capital is like it's, it's very visible in the tech sector where you have a lot of people trying to leave the San Francisco Bay area because they have to pay their workers so much because of rent. It's really rent. So they really, they have to have these crazy packages to entice anybody to work for them because of they have to assume they're going to be paying just astronomical rents. So that is a very, very fundamental way in which the capitalist class and the landowning class come into conflict. And I think what you're pointing to a way that sort of tenant, Tenant struggles and or uh, wage struggles can turn out to do nothing for the actual benefit of workers if if it's like borne out by being appropriated by the other one. So if you, get, if you get higher wages, but you have to pay more rents, you're screwed. If you get lower rents, but your wages are reduced, you're screwed. And both of these situations are like what happens everywhere. So... Yes, you have to if if you're trying to think about how to like raise the quality of life for working people, you would have to have a very explicit dual pronged attack of re- lowering rents and lower and raising wages at the same time, which is very difficult to do, of course, because and and as I said before, I think that I don't I didn't say it in these terms, tenants as we think of tenants like us, like people Working people being tenants is not like a technical tenant relationship in terms of ground rent theory. It is as the otherwise mostly flawed angles argued, a consumer relationship where you're consuming the commodity of an apartment monthly. So consumer struggles, as we know, are very difficult and flawed. It's crazy right now, like like people cannot hire a dishwasher. Like, restaurants cannot hire a dishwasher because no one can survive on a dishwasher's salary. And, like, places are shutting down because they can't hire people to work the register. It's uh, it's kind of wild because just the rents are too high. So, like, especially small-scale capitalists are, like, really pissed and trying to pressure the local government to do something about it. But the landlord lobby in California is just so strong.
1: In California, they tried to do rent control through the referendum, and then... Basically, hasn't the state now preempted municipalities from being able to introduce them?
2: There's been a lot of successes in terms of various ways to like provide more affordable housing for people in California and in the Bay Area. And then they, they keep, things keep getting blocked in terms of making them actually happen. And then also there has been some large like I don't know if you're familiar with Prop 13 in California, which is a probably there's things like that, which 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 have been not been able to succeed in repealing Prop 13 because of the landlord lobby. So, yeah, it's 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 strange because, you know, where we can vote on these on bills here, like especially in San Francisco and the, the voters in San Francisco have voted on all of these affordable housing and. Provisions and then they're just stalled in the city government. Like the funds have not been dispersed for years.
0: Well, I wanted to ask a maybe unfair question to you, which is to answer the questions that you yourself raise in the article. I think just, you know, it's important for us to figure out where, when, and why the state is more supportive to landowners than to capitalists. So could you say more about that?
2: Yeah, well, that's related to kind of what I was, I think about it a lot here in California because. I think they're very powerful here landowners and I will take a cheap and cheap exit to the question which is that the state is more supportive to landowners than to capitalists when landowners are more powerful when they're making the most money and they have the most they can wield the most influence which is often I think in the United States. Agriculture Y'all may know is like really heavily subsidized in the United States. If you are poor, you can't get housing, but you can get food stamps. You can't you can't get a place to live, but you can get food. You can get you know what they what they give you on WIC? They give five gallons of milk a month per child, something like that four four and a half who drinks that much milk? Like, it's disgusting. I was on it for a while. Why does it, if you, if you need food, there's food, you know, why is there so much food everywhere? And there's so much government providing food. The agricultural industry in the U.S. is so heavily subsidized by the U.S. government. It's like really wild. Where do those subsidies go? There's been some good studies that show that the subsidies actually go to the landowners of the agricultural land when you know everything tallies out the people who are really winning are the landowners of agricultural land whose revenue is really guaranteed by the ways in which the united states government subsidizes agriculture so whenever there's a study that kind of looks at you know capitalists versus landowners who is doing the like biggest scale manipulations it, it's often like i see it being landowners. Which is not to say that capitalists don't have like a direct tap to the government like they do too, obviously, in many, many ways. But it is interesting how often the government is making these choices that like ultimately really just reinforces like the perma power of the landowners in the US. And really, it's very US centric. I apologize, but it's where I'm at right now.
1: Do you think that your argument, like in specific ways, how can it bolster the strategic significance or bolster the campaigns of around housing and tenants if it does that
2: yes absolutely always a good question uh i would say that i am a person who does theory because i am interested in the truth you know and if it is helpful then that is a gift to me of course um however i'm also like a activist the organizer person as like another component of my being so I do have the opportunity to see if any of this is useful and it's useful to me I do think that uh here are some ways in which I think I've seen it potentially be useful and could be useful in the future firstly when you when you attend to the distinction between the landowner and the capitalist in urban housing markets it really clarifies the picture a little bit so I've made the argument that the property management company is like the capitalist tenant in the urban housing universe in the same way that the agricultural farmer is like the capitalist tenant. Right. So you have property management companies and a lot of these like big sort of like usurious landowner relations where these big multifamily buildings with tenants that are getting like pushed out and like all these rent increases and all these fees and et cetera. There is a, usually these days in major metropoles, there is a formidable property management company who is doing all the work. So that is the capitalist. That entity does not own that property. They just merely mix living labor with the dead labor and create the, you know, recreate the values for people to be purchasing every month there. And they are trying to get as much out of the people as they can. And so when you're a tenant and like I've been involved in some tenant struggles here, like we we were working with some buildings owned by this company called Veritas and they have a uh, property management company. They use, I think it's called Green Tree. So the tenants, like they don't even know who is the actual owner of the property. They don't know the difference between the owner and the, and the property. And I didn't either when I started researching all this. So to know what the difference is, I think gives you a sense of, what are the weak points you can press on? So which, which company is more, for example, like debt leveraged? Um, and what does that mean for a capitalist versus a landowner? What kind of things can you manipulate? What kind of like weaknesses can you push upon? It's gonna be a little bit different depending on whether what entity you're looking at in that situation. And I think that that's been helpful for me and could be helpful in like m- large scale tenant organizing against some of these big guys. Also, in in terms of looking at who's the strongest lobby, like who's sort of influencing like local and regional policy on housing and land use? Is it the capitalists making profits from their productive activity on the land? Or is it the landowners? Um, If we notice who is being more served, then we can think about who is the people that are, like, influencing those decision-making processes more accurately. Like, we'll be able to think about that more accurately. And if you're into the policy-making world, which I, like, begrudgingly find myself in occasionally, then you're more able to make, like, salient arguments and, like, work around. Sometimes you got to, like, work around this certain force. Like, how can we work around it? You can have clearer ideas about that. And then finally, I would say, oh, you know, this is, like... A, rough one, but there is a potential to ally with one over the other. So you can essentially ally with landowners against capitalists, or you can ally with capitalists against landowners. I'm not saying we should, but I'm saying that's factual. That's just possible to do. So you, when you look at things in these terms, you can consider that as an option.
1: I would say that it is the case, and you're absolutely right. In my experience, in this country, in the U.S., that landowners, especially at the local level, have a lot more power over politicians. But I would say that's at, at, at a kind of at the level of the base. Hegemonically, I think they don't necessarily. I think you know, capitalists, small scales capitalists, still are part of the kind of American ego ideal. And like when we were trying to do minimum wage struggles, we would always be organized and weaponized against them in this really kind of like deeply cultural way, or an ideological way. And when when landlords would try to pull that shit. People did not care. They were like, we don't care if you're a big landlord or a small landlord. You're a scumbag. So I think it's, I think I agree, I, I agree in my just anecdotal experience that like all, like they do have a lot of power, but I don't, I never saw it. And I'm just saying this anecdotally. I never saw that kind of hegemonic power that you're describing. Hegemonic insofar as like it, in people's minds, they were like, that these were a defensible. This is a defensible form of like profit making, uh, in the way that other forms of profit generation, accumulation of wealth, in the way that other other things weren't, and that's just that's just been my experience in London as well. I think that's been my experience. But
2: where in the U.S. did you have that experience?
1: I was actually a county supervisor representing Madison, Wisconsin, when I was very young. But it was, I found that the housing struggles actually we were able to we you know we tripled the, the fines on landlords. Rents are, I mean, insane in Madison, but we tried to do inclusionary zonings, which like, I, because rent controls are preempted by the state since 1976, we couldn't do rent controls. We did inclusionary zoning, even that they called, they took to court. It was like a long, it was drawn out thing. This
2: sort of substantiates something that I've been, that I try to sort of gesture towards in the article. When I look at like places with, with places with higher rents, landlords are more powerful. All right. So like I'm listening to what you're saying, I'm like, that is bonkers because that is does not happen in California. In California, you walk it's like you, it's like they have convinced so many people that mom and pop landlords are like the angels of society, that they are like the most beautiful, precious, important, wonderful people that like we need to protect because they are desperately endangered. Like that is the vibe here. And of course, the people who are pushing that argument are not the mom and pap landlords who are just like, whatever they, of course, there, there's a few of them, not that, you know, it's the big landlords, because they are able to push these policies and block other policies based on appealing to this figure of the mom and pop landlord.
1: This is also 15 years ago. So I mean, maybe it's maybe 15 years is a lifetime, you know, but No, no, this is, this is 17 years ago.
2: 15 years ago, it would have still been the case here, but there was still, what I'm saying is that having it not have traction would coincide with a weak landowning class. Whereas here, they're so strong that they have like literally funneled so much money into this ideological battle to like elevate the mom and pop landlord that like people like are really worried about them. So it's interesting because I, I assume like 17 years ago in Madison, like, you know, was not necessarily like a super hot real estate market. And and that would, that would, that would mean that there's not like these incredible like vicious moneyed interests trying to make sure that they have a lockdown on the ideological, you know, terrain.
0: So we can wrap up and thank both Francesca for brilliant paper and for the very interesting and stimulating conversation please check out our other episodes so we've had episodes on the political economy of the tarzans in canada on the relationship between marxism dialectics and climate change also on political marxism and on the economics of imperialism and many more to come so stay tuned you can all download the paper It will be made open access, so you can download that for free on the historical materialism website.
1: And also, don't forget to like and follow HM on Facebook and Twitter for constant updates on events, news, and uh, join the email list on historicalmaterialism.com. And I'm going to plug that um, HM Athens is happening in April. Head on over to Athens. Also subscribe to the HM Journal. Uh, get a 25% discount if you email historical materialism at psoas.ac.uk.